Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Geek Warning. I'm James Huang. I'm here in the studio, otherwise known as the bike shop, with ace mechanic Zach Edwards of the Boulder Gruppetto. Hi, Zach. Hello. Also joining me in the virtual studio, way, way, way over in Sydney, Australia, is tool hoarder and tech editor extraordinaire, Dave Rome. Dave, how are you? I'm oh, very well. Thank you. Wasn't used to having such a, such an intro, so thank you for that. I mean, I can come up with a it's very official. less appealing one. <laughs> that, that's all good. We'll stick with that one. <laughs> uh, we have a whole bunch to talk about in this week's show. I just came back from checking out pretty much seemingly everything and anything at Sea Otter uh, last week. Uh, we've got some news on the Wahoo front. We have a, uh, I would say maybe an intriguing new cross-country mountain bike from Specialized. Uh, we have uh, a very curious development in the bicycle service world, uh, at least in the UK. Now we're going to talk about that. Uh, and then we're going to talk about Boyd Cycling's new aluminum rim factory in South Carolina. That's pretty intriguing as well. Then we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff that I saw at Sea Otter, see what's on our minds, and then maybe a PSA to wrap things up. So yeah, we've got a pretty, pretty full show in store for you today. Uh, what do you want? What do we want to start with here today? What, should we maybe start with the bad news? Get that out of the way. Go. Oh. Uh, well, people who have been paying attention to this maybe have caught wind of the fact that Wahoo Fitness is not really doing great. Uh, they were one of the companies who expanded way, way, way too much and took on way too much investment money during the pandemic, and they are now uh. Super, super deep in the hole. They actually defaulted on their uh, on some of their debt last week. And the hits keep on coming because barely a week after Wahoo defaulted on some of its debt, a U.S. federal judge has now rejected the company's request to halt sales of the Zwift Hub indoor trainer, claiming that it infringed on Wahoo patents. Uh, I would imagine Wahoo has a fair bit wrapped up in legal fees on this thing, and I'm not really sure exactly what they're hoping to gain by going up against Zwift. Um, but this kind of feels like it's, I mean, it was already kind of seemingly the beginning of the end for Wahoo, but this sure feels like another nail in the coffin. Um, it, it seems inevitable at this point that Wahoo is going to get bought by someone instead of just disappearing entirely. But what I'm wondering is who would actually buy Wahoo? Not that, not that they're a bad company to buy, but like, where does their portfolio best fit into somebody? It's an interesting question. Uh, I guess my... I, I obviously I don't have an answer to that, but uh, I guess my question would be: What does the company look like once that does happen? You know, like where, yeah, wh- what what areas of Wahoo will remain and what areas of Wahoo uh, are likely to disappear through this, or get sold off, or get sold off, split off? Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely a, a very big question, but. Uh, for me, I, I can't imagine Wahoo with its its current portfolio of, of software and hardware continuing into into the future uh, under new ownership. I think they they'd really whoever buys them will really focus back to what their core product was and where their core profitability is. So yeah, I think that's that's perhaps the bigger question for me. Uh, but either way, yeah, I mean it's it's not great news for them and definitely uh feel sorry for everyone that's uh that's wrapped up in all this i mean i guess essentially what we're talking about when you when you mentioned core competencies is in, in the case of wahoo we're looking at indoor trainers and gps computers right mm-hmm. yep um i mean not too long ago wahoo bought speedplay 
Um, you know, I went through a bunch of revamp and redesign for those and the reintroduction of those pedals has, I would say, been decidedly kind of tepid. Um, so I, I don't know how many people are still using Speedplay pedals anyway, especially not the new generation, but for anyone that buys Wahoo, it seems like, like you said, Dave, they're going to want them for the indoor trainers and for the GPS computers. And who knows, maybe even those two things get split off from each other. Like the, the indoor trainer seems to me like the most valuable part, I would guess. Yeah, I would guess as well, but... Uh, well, I guess, I don't know, maybe I equally think that, the indoor trainer and GPS computers. Yeah, I think even way. the indoor trainer market's not quite as uh, lucrative as it was two years ago. Uh, I feel like uh, a lot of people now own a trainer that's, uh, that is is lasting the distance and uh, don't necessarily need to upgrade or upgrade all the time. And uh, I think we're seeing that through the kind of lukewarm feature additions that that the trainer brands are now offering with each new iteration. Uh, it's kind of got to a point of, you know, modern smartphone technology where you get a few extra megapixels in the camera and an extra lens, and that's all they can sell you a new phone on. Uh, so I think it's... I think it's a tough business to be in right now, but yeah, it's. Uh, I think there's certainly a, a space to watch. I I personally don't have any answers, but I don't know, James. Like, do you th- do you have any insight or any any clues as to what sort of company might take Wahoo on next? I mean, I've certainly heard rumblings and rumors of who has been talking to Wahoo. Interesting. Uh, it's unfortunately nothing that I can disclose here, I would say. Mm. Um, certainly nothing confirmed, so I would prefer not to. It would probably be better not to mention any names. For sure. Um, but of all the companies that I've heard who are talking with Wahoo about potentially purchasing them, for sure, they don't want all of Wahoo. No question. Um, there, you know, if someone buys Wahoo, it's just going to get broken up. Um, and you know, for sure they'll just keep bits and pieces that they need and everything else will get sold off. But I, I mean, I, I wonder, I wonder if the computer business could be spun off on its own. Um, I think it probably could be. And ironically, it's where Wahoo started. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that could be a standalone business. The indoor trainer business could be standalone. The pedal thing. I mean, maybe i don't like i said i don't know how many people are still using speedplay anyway um but it does make me wonder if like if speedplay were to go away like how much of an impact how much of an impact would that be i mean zach you see probably a, a better cross-section of stuff coming through here than we do um like how many people do you still see using speedplay i mean i definitely see a handful of people using speedplay but around here honestly not that many people do because the roads around here we have dirt roads and stuff and if you've ever been speed play and unclipped your foot and put it down in some dirt then that's not really pretty much your ride. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so there's honestly not that many people around here that use them even though like wahoo has an office here and you'd think that would kind of influence more people to ride them but i don't know it seems like you have like very hardcore speed play users and then other people that have maybe tried them or that are just very anti them so yeah, personally, around, if they disappeared, I wouldn't be that sad. <laughs> uh, around here in Sydney, I mean, we used to have Steve Hogg based in Sydney, the famous bike uh, bike fitter, and he was uh, a very strong proponent of of Speedplay. So a lot of people that went through him for bike fitting are on Speedplay. We also had like the the Australian distributor was based in Sydney. So for me, I do see them. I I think there's a few percentage points of the of the road market here uh, are on them, but that's the old system that's that's speed play speed play not wahoo speed speed play 
And I think Wahoo's speed play, uh, you know, they had a, a, a few missteps on introduction, right? They had the, the bearing issue with their pedals. Uh, they had, I guess, yeah, maybe some struggle in, in distribution as well in terms of getting the product out there and, and letting its hardcore speed play f- fans know that the product's back and under new ownership and what that all means. Uh, so, yeah, but I, I, I certainly would say that when Wahoo purchased Speedplay, they probably had this this dream of being the second player in the in the pedal market that they could overtake. Look as the the as the favored road pedal, and and you know not take Shimano's market share, but potentially take over where Look was really strong. And as we all know, uh, SRAM entered the the road, that pedal market as well with time and are arguably doing a much stronger job of it so right right yes i I feel like that whole market heated up around them in a way they didn't anticipate with that acquisition Mm, well big ambitions and hopefully that doesn't go with a big failure but yeah we'll we'll keep an eye on this one um what will seemingly be a much bigger splash regardless of what we think of the thing uh, specialized has a new cross-country mountain bike that is I'd say hasn't been a very well kept secret. It's been out on the circuit for quite some time, and it you know a few leaked photos here and there, but people had a pretty good idea of what this was. Uh, Dave, what what is this thing exactly? Yeah, new Epic World Cup. So the Epic is their their cross country race platform, and the Epic World Cup uh, is a dual suspension that replaces their hardtail. Is probably the the most. Um, yeah, probably the best way of putting it. But it's uh yeah, it's it's kind of uh if anyone has seen the Trek Supercaliber, then you've probably seen the new specialized Epic World Cup. Uh <laughs> and it's very, very similar. So it's it's got a top tube mounted sort of semi-integrated rear shock. Uh the rear travel is actually less than previous Epic full suspension bikes, so it's just 75 millimeters of rear travel. Uh, while the front travel is actually bumped up, so it's 110 millimeters of travel on the front, and yeah, it's it's uh, officially it's replacing Specialized's top end hardtails, but it's also replacing their top end full suspension uh, race S Works level race bikes as well. All right, so now what we're going to have is presumably the S Works Evo, or I guess the 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 Epic Evo range, which is supposedly. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like a little bit more, like almost delving into trail category a little yep. bit. But that's yep. a, the trail. term for that is down, down country. country. Oh, I can't, I can't do it, Mike Levy. This is your fault. Anyway, um, so Mike Levy the, doesn't even like that category name. I know, it's but so his, funny. It's and, his and he's fault, to blame. He, he yeah. invented it. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, on, at, at one end of the spectrum, we have uh, the Epic Evo, which is uh, what is it, one twenty up front and one ten in the back, I think. And then uh, Specialized is retaining. Uh, I think just one level, uh, like a comp level of the Epic hardtail. And then now in the middle, we're going to have this Epic World Cup, like pseudo hardtail thing. Yeah. Um, there's been no announcement or no hints whatsoever about what's going to happen to the Evo range, but that's got to be coming soon, surely. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's also is- there's also one more bike in the range, which is uh, the brain equipped Epic. So uh, the yes, 100 mil travel mm-hmm previous race bike that'll that retains at like a mid-level price point i'm not going to say it at, at an entry-level price point because it's definitely not an entry-level price point bike but it's it's more like that comp and expert level is where that bike um, is being repurposed 
I mean, that I feel like the previous version that they still have on their website and is still for sale that you just mentioned, I feel like that that will go away as soon as the warehouse full of them is gone. Like they're not going to come out with a new paint job of that. Yeah, I think like, they have surely. announced a new like yeah new year model of it. But yeah, it de- definitely seems like a carryover until they they burn through the stock, or perhaps until the maybe even until like the the high end sort of uh, pursuit of this epic World Cup, this new pseudo dual suspension. Um, perhaps once that. Uh, the sales of that start to dwindle at the top end. They'll they'll maybe trickle it down. I mean, I, I can't remember. I saw some. I'm sure it was on some forum or something. I saw a rumor that there is of the new World Cup that there's going to be an aluminum version of that, mm. which I think would be freaking rad. Yeah, but that would then replace that old carryover model of the current comps and experts and stuff. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. And it's it's in theory a cheaper bike for them to rep, to do at a lower end range because it's no longer got that hugely complicated brain shock in it as well so it is just a yeah a simplified race bike now dave who is this epic world cup aimed at cross-country races i mean it's it's realistically it is just designed to be an all-round race bike now so it's i would say given the amount of travel in it it's not going to be the the best bike for for people that really like I guess pushing the technical side of racing and and really like doing aggressive uh and r- ultra rough downhill style cross country races uh but for everyone else like short track and for XC and for I guess faster marathon racing this is specialized answer to that uh just to be clear uh this bike does look extremely similar to the Trek Supercaliber. There is mm-hmm. one little distinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Trek Supercaliber, that rear shock, it's almost kind of more of a strut. I think Trek actually calls it the ISO strut. Yeah. Um, so the the front and rear end, I guess the both ends of the shock are rigidly attached to the top tube. Yeah. Uh, whereas on the Epic, it's almost kind of like a mini swing link at the rear end of the shock. So it's it's very slightly different, but which it should, still looks almost the same. That like their whole marketing around this bike was it's killing the hardtail, which yeah. I think is just the stupidest marketing marketing of it. Like talk about how this suspension it works really well, how it's different from the Trek. Like it has a linkage driven rear shock, right? Like so that there is different. It's not a structural component yeah. of the frame like on the Trek. So like talk about that and talk about why it's a good bike. Don't talk about like we're killing the hardtail. Like you guys still make the chisel and the epic hardtail, and like a lot of people can't afford full suspensions or they live yeah. somewhere where a hardtail is a great bike. So like, and a lot of people still like hardtails. Yeah, hardtails are fun. Yeah, like instead of just being like this bike's better than a hardtail, be like this is why it's a World Cup or World Champs winning level mm-hmm. race bike. Yeah, which for I think sure. they kind of missed the mark there. Absolutely. There's some interesting stuff that they talk about with this whole like half gulp, full gulp thing too, right? So Dave, do you want to talk about some of the different shock settings that Specialized is talking about here? Yeah, so they've they've obviously they've ditched the brain technology, the brain being the uh the sort of auto locking suspension where uh if a large enough force from the wheel um occurred, it would it would basically open up the valving of the shock and let the suspension do its thing. Uh, that's gone away. Uh, what they've used instead is uh, they've sort of rewound the clock a bit and gone with a shock that has both positive and negative air chambers that can be manually tuned. So the idea there is that uh, if you run no negative air, 
in the in the negative air spring, then it's it's actually uh, the shock's basically topped out. So at that point, you're basically on a hardtail that requires a large enough force to to get that positive air spring moving. Uh, and yeah, by tuning the amount of air that you have in that negative air spring, you can basically start to add in sag into the system. Uh, so basically, every other suspension bike on the market runs runs sag, which lets the uh, yeah, so the the bike sort of sits in with your body weight and lets the rear wheel follow the the contours of the trail. Um, so yeah, the more pos- uh, sorry, the more negative air you add to that shock, the the more sag you'll have with the system. Um, it's still very minimal sag though. So most XC race bikes will run about twenty to twenty five percent sag. So say you've got a hundred mil of rear travel, then you're sitting in about roughly seventy to seventy five percent of that travel. Sorry, you've got. 70 to 75 percent of active travel after that so you're sitting in about 25 mil of it um so yeah specialized by comparison only running like five to ten percent sag at at most uh which is very minimal so it's still you can expect this is still going to be a bit more of a a rougher ride than uh than most full suspension bikes on the market um i don't know if either of you two remember this bike but when i was going over the press materials for this thing i mean it it does sound like it would be a very fast bike in the mm-hmm. right conditions. However, I was also picking up some pretty, pretty strong giant NRS vibes from back in the day. <laughs> yes. Because that yes, was... Stand out of the saddle. <laughs> yeah, because that, that was a bike, that was a dual suspension bike that Giant introduced in the like early 2000s, I think, oh, maybe. Oh, so cool. And, oh, I, I, I had two of them, actually. Oh, yeah, one, one, I had one. And yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a full suspension bike that was designed to be run fully topped out. Yeah. And it also, ironically, had a RockShox SID rear shock with independently mm-hmm. tunable positive and negative chambers. Yep. Uh, and it just there were just a lot of strong vibes about that here. I'm not saying it's the same bike, but uh, it's maybe just a, yet another example of, you know, kind of what's what was what is old is new again at some point. Yep. History repeats yeah, itself. Just, but yeah, <laughs> coming full circle here. <laughs> Absolutely. And and yeah, so that's the thing. Like, there's not a lot brand new about this bike. It's just you know, uh, modern technology, it means you've got a frame that's under 1800 grams now and, uh, modern geometry as well is, is sort of what really separates this from, from the old tech. Uh, but yeah, it's certainly there's, uh, I would say the brain was more innovative in that sense than, than what this shock is, is doing. Oh yeah. But the brain was, I feel like had its own issues, Mm -hmm. I would say. But yes. I'd be super curious to ride this bike. Like I have a super caliber with the 120 fork, so it's kind of in the similar geo as the new one is. Like the the super caliber with the 100 mil fork is a bit outdated, I would say. But like the super caliber uses 60 mil travel, so a bit less. And you set it up with sag, and in my opinion, like it absolutely rips. And like I even riding it on really dumb like enduro trails, I don't feel like I wish I had more rear travel. Like it just absolutely rips. So I'd be really curious to ride this one with like slightly different theory behind how the suspension works, but aesthetically a very similar bike. Like yep. it'd be, yeah, super interesting just to like a back-to-back. Have you taken that super cow to the left hand? Oh yeah. <laughs> as soon as you said enduro style trails, I'm like, you've taken that to the left hand, haven't you? Yeah, it's super fun over there on XC bike. <laughs> so question on, on this, uh, Specialized made some statements around that the hardtail is dead. When Trek released their Supercaliber, they they somewhat made a similar marketing pitch, uh, and they removed their top end lightweight 
weight weenie hardtail from the range in the process. Do we think the hardtail's dead? I don't think so. I mean, it's for a variety of reasons. I feel like the gravel bike will become the hardtail, right? Like mm. you'll have flat bar gravel bikes with 29er by 2.2 tires. Like it's still exists. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, at like the world cup level, I don't really think so, except on very, very particular courses. Like for the most part, a full suspension is always going to be faster. Yeah. But that doesn't mean hardtails are dead. Like they're still, like James said, super fun bikes. Like I have a hardtail as well. And it, every time I ride it, I'm like, wow, this is really dumb, but also like really fun. And it puts a smile on my face. Yeah. It's, it's dumb, but sort of in like, in like an irresponsibly fun way. Yeah. And I also think like, I mean, this is a whole other topic, but I think a hardtail too, like makes people better mountain bikers. Like you actually have to learn, learn line choice and like how to ride smoothly instead of just monster trucking through everything. Um, So I think there is a place for the hardtail. But I, I'm really intrigued with this idea or this rumor that you heard, Zach, about there being an aluminum Epic World Cup version. I mean, this could just be stuff on the internet. It like, could be, but it, I still love the idea of it because, as you mentioned, hardtails for sure are, are a great way to learn uh, good technique in mountain biking. And they're obviously a lot more affordable than full suspension than anything. Um, but if Specialized were to come out with an aluminum version of this thing, that would presumably be certainly not inexpensive but a lot more affordable than a carbon fiber basically, one basically be a chisel I mean, like, with a rear shock right like yeah. xc xc yeah. racing happens at all levels like not everyone's racing uci races and needs the fifteen thousand dollar model right like an aluminum one of these would be fantastic mm-hmm. yeah it'd be it'd be basically like an aluminum hardtail with a safety net yeah yeah, I would that I would very seriously consider buying one of those i mean i i tried to buy a, a chisel myself um <laughs> which didn't work out after trying for, for 18 months or something to get one. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, a, a chisel with a rear shock is I had a chisel and it was so me. sweet. Like, chisel is one of, like, I had it a couple of years ago and it was so rad. Like, yeah. crazy light, rode really well, did yep. all the things a bike should do. Yep. So, but, yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely a bike I'm excited for. If it exists and if Specialized is planning it, then that would be a huge seller. This, I think... The interesting thing too will be this bike, the Epic one, was very much compared to how it looked like the Super Caliber for the last however many months since photos of it have been out. Mm-hmm. But Trek also released a video with their XC team with blurred out bikes this spring. So I very much look forward to see what their answer to it is. I think that will be a really interesting <laughs> XC bike battle. I'm, yeah, I'm mostly just excited that the, there's just so much stuff going on in the XC world right now between. Like the bikes are rad and getting so much more capable and just so much better in general. The riding is rad. The racing is rad. The courses are super good. Uh, like the spectating is really good. Just like XC's on XC's on fire again. It's good. I I have reservations about how specialized and track have seemingly gone with less travel, while the courses are seemingly getting way more technical and way more trail like. Uh, and I, I think that's for me that'll be the most interesting thing moving forward is which direction do bikes go like scott went the other way right scott are basically racing their race bikes almost like a mini trail bike it's like a i guess it's the closest competitor would be like the specialized epic evo so um yeah for me that's that's probably the most interesting thing is there's a like this divide between a bike that effectively imitates a hardtail and then a a bike that imitates a trail bike and which which one's going to be the fastest option yeah, I was going to say, because you're talking about travel, mm. I would venture to guess the new Trek will be longer travel 
because yep. if you look at what the World Cup team is riding, they're all riding 120 forks instead of 100 or 110. Yeah. So, well, in any event, I uh, have already put in a request to Specialize to send over a uh, Epic World Cup test bike for review. So, yeah, hopefully that shows up soon, and hopefully this this last lingering bits of winter here in Colorado just <laughs> are finally gone. Because uh, yeah, I'd like to go ride that thing and do a proper review on it, and we'll see how it goes. All right, next bit of news. Uh, Ronan, I think, came up with this one, or maybe it was was it Ronan who came up with the uh, the Bike EU Service Center thing? Yeah, I'd Dave, say it was, was it bike, bikeeu.com that came up with it. Well, I know, but who found it, Dave? Was it you or Ronan? <laughs> it was Ronan. Okay. So next piece of news is something that Ronan actually stumbled upon. Uh, there was an article written in Bike Europe as a trade magazine uh, talking about how um, QuickFit, a big, uh, a big servicing and repair center, I guess, chain in the UK for automobiles. Uh, they've got over 600 locations. They are now diversifying into the bike market uh, but predominantly looking at e-bikes. Uh, that's really interesting because I think we've all noticed for quite a long time at this point that automotive companies clearly have a very, very big interest in the e-bike, or I should say kind of like the the whole micromobility trend in general or that whole world. Uh, we see a whole bunch of automotive companies who are involved in that space already, either with their own brands or kind of like little subdivisions of the company that have connections to the parent brand. Uh, and this seems like sort of just like another step in that direction because I don't know if you're a mainstream customer who doesn't really ride bikes necessarily, but has an e-bike for transportation, this sort of scenario, I would argue almost makes, would almost make more sense to that person than going to a bike shop. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely worrying for the, for the bike shops, but yeah, suddenly when you're talking about e-bikes that are, are getting to a weight that are no longer suitable for for lifting up into a traditional repair stand and you're you're talking about technology that has more in common with a, a modern automobile than it does with a, a traditional bicycle uh i mean it, it yeah for me it, it it makes perfect sense that uh especially in the cargo base cargo bike space uh that's they'd be going with the people that are already trained in motors and electronics uh, versus trying to train up a a dealer a bicycle dealer network to do the same overlapping role. Yeah, speaking of kind of the infrastructure in bike shops, as far as dealing with for sure e cargo bikes, a lot of shops, well, I guess in the EU in particular, there are pretty firm restrictions on what you know how heavy a thing you're allowed to lift, mm. and that's one of the reasons why you're seeing a lot of these kind of motorized or assisted work stands, uh, like from Park Tool and EBT, companies like that. Um, well, every, yeah, every major cycling tool company now offers a, an assisted work stand, um, with the exception of Feedback Sports, who don't do like shop-style work stands. They just do right. port- portable ones. But anyone that does a shop-style work stand now actually has a electric or otherwise assisted work stand. Yeah, and all of those things are awfully expensive, um, and bicycle, bicycle shops oftentimes just don't really have the spare cash to, to invest in something like that. They, they certainly don't often have the room to deal with a bunch of car- cargo bikes and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so it'll be really curious to see what happens here. Yeah. I mean, to, to expand on what I was saying where automotive service shops might be better equipped. Um, I mean, a perfect example is that Bosch, their first generation e-bike motor was actually a repurposed power steering unit from uh, i believe it was a mercedes-benz might have been bmw but uh that's you know and and that product has basically just been um 
yeah reiterated from there so i mean that's that's technology that the mechanics in the automotive world probably deal with all the time likewise they're going through training for how to handle high-powered lithium-ion and, and large-capacity lithium-ion batteries for, for the EV market. Uh, once again, they're, they're better equipped for that. I know, for example, Porsche, locally in Australia, they have, um, I believe uh, it's, it's called like a drenching bay or something like that. So if, if they have a battery issue in a car and they can't access the battery in time, it's obviously a fire risk. They basically drive the car into a bay and uh, it drops uh, a huge amount of water. It basically submerges the entire car to contain the battery risk. Uh, I mean, obviously, the ideal is to never need that, but it exists, right? And these service centers are are equipped for that, whereas uh, bicycle service centers, I know they're encouraged to have like sandboxes and that type of thing in case of battery fault and failure, but it's... You know, if that battery is integrated deeply into the frame, or if it's uh, if it's in an e-cargo bike where it might not be super accessible, um, some of these bike shops aren't necessarily equipped to handle that from a safety point of view. So I think, yeah, moving forward, while it's perhaps not the best news for the bicycle industry, uh, it does make sense that some of these automotive companies are, are getting into the space. Mm. Well, I definitely don't see a sandbox here in Zach's shop. Nope. <laughs> I mean, it almost feels like there needs to be like some sort of hybrid, like specialty e-bike shop, right? Like, I mean, there are those, yeah. Because like, the car mechanics, they have to do all the training to work on the bicycle portion of it, right? Like the yeah. brakes and the shifting and all yeah. of that. Or like, otherwise, you have a bike mechanic learning how to do all the electronic stuff. It's like you need you need someone that's an expert in all of it. Like, yeah. and most shops don't have the capacity to to like specialize and train in that kind of thing. Like they're too busy with everyone's flat tires and general tune-ups and trying to sell bikes and just like stay alive in general. Right. Yep. Like let alone, I mean, I think like some shops have been able to transfer and do, do e-bike stuff really well, but I don't think it's right to expect every bike shop to do that at the current stage of things. No. And I I foresee the future being like e-bike specialist, like individuals that are specialists in e-bike servicing as part of larger stores so you might have a bike shop that has 10 mechanics and one or two of them might be really proficient in uh motor repairs and perhaps battery refurb and that kind of thing um but right now that's just not a skill set that the bike industry has had to have um so i think there's going to be a gap in skill sets for for the foreseeable future until uh, the demand really brings that sort of uh, yeah knowledge base in. Well, this is definitely going to be another trend that we're going to be keeping a close eye on uh, because it certainly has potentially huge ramifications for the cycling industry, I, I guess, at least on the service and maintenance side of things. So, uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye on this. Uh, last bit of news before mm-hmm. we move on to see other stuff. Uh, Boyd Cycling uh, is kind of a smaller wheel brand based in South Carolina. They've announced a new factory uh, really close to its Greenville, South Carolina uh, headquarters called Olive Manufacturing Group, abbreviation OMG. Haha. Um, but the uh, but OMG is it's named after the daughter of Boyd Cycling founders uh, Boyd and Nicole Johnson, and they are going to be making rims. In the U.S., aluminum rims, I should say. Uh, the extrusions are going to be formed elsewhere, but this facility is going to be rolling and joining and uh, doing machining and anodizing, that sort of thing. It's kind of a big deal because there's just not a whole lot of aluminum rim manufacturing in the United States. Uh, they've already talked about – Boyd and Nicole have already talked about how 
uh, I guess some other companies have already talked to them about making rims for them as well. Um, and I don't think this is, you know, sort of the, I don't think this was a move to kind of like cut costs or anything like that. If anything, I would imagine this took quite a bit of investment. Um, but it's part of a bigger trend that we've been seeing, particularly in the last two years of companies onshoring production, uh, essentially just so they can have much better control of their, of their processes. Cause you know, I, I think everyone was disrupted pretty badly in the last couple of years and having your manufacturing be under the same roof and at the very least be a lot closer to where you're doing everything makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. You're not having to carry a year's worth of or two years worth of stock. You can sort of be a bit more uh, fluid in how you're producing stock and uh, not having to be invested so much in that regard. Rather, you're invested in, I guess, in the staffing and manufacturing of things. Uh, I'd also say I'd imagine that um, rim manufacturing is inherently expensive from a freight point of view because you're basically shipping uh, large hollow hoops around the world. Um, with a lot of air in between. So uh, I would imagine that that's probably a factor as well, that uh, there's probably some efficiencies to be had by not having to ship uh, boxes of rims from, from Asia across the US. Yeah, I mean, straight extrusions certainly take up a lot less room, that's for sure. Yeah. So, But yeah, it's definitely uh, it's a, it's a trend we definitely like. Uh, and yeah, I think it's good on Boyd for making that step. Yeah, and so Boyd is already going to have a couple of models that are going to use uh, the rims that they are producing in-house. Uh, I think it's the Altamont and the Bracken, uh, road and a mountain version. Um, and I would imagine certainly they're going to ideally hope to produce all of their aluminum rims in-house. Again, like I said, they're going to be presumably making aluminum rims for other brands as well. Uh, so we'll see what's going on there. But yeah, I think this is a cool development. So good on you, Boyd. Good on you, Boyd and Nicole. And Olive, although yeah, she's 10 and maybe... Isn't, doesn't have a whole lot of say in the company just yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just to be clear, Boyd is not the first company to be producing aluminum rims in the U.S. Uh, we've also had uh, Velocity, who had been doing it for quite a long time. We think that they're still doing it. Um, and then uh, Astral Cycling, which is sort of an offshoot of Rolf Prima. Uh, they were making their own aluminum rims for a while as well. Um, and I think they're still at it because there was some association there with White, in- uh, with white Industries that uh, kind of escapes me off the top of my head. But anyway, uh, yeah, kind of a neat development. It's it's fun to see this happening over here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good trend. All right. Shall we move on to Sea Otter? Well, James, you were at the show. Uh, I was back in Australia uh, watching coverage of the show remotely. Um, what did you see? I mean, it's it's what? You're there for three days? Yeah, the show went for four days in total, um, but I, I only stayed for three full days. I had to get back home at some point. Um, but uh, Sea Otter, certainly with the with the demise of Interbike, Sea Otter basically took over the reins as being the, the premier trade show in the U.S. Kind of unique because it's also open to consumers, just whoever wants to go. So that's a pretty neat aspect. So as a result of that, a lot of the new stuff, most of the new stuff that you see there is also available to consumers right then and there. It's not like they're showing a bunch of like embargoed stuff that they don't want uh, like non-media, non-industry people to see, which is cool. Um but uh, yeah, I mean, X, XC mountain biking is definitely hot right now. No question. Uh, mm-hmm. There was an awful lot of that stuff to be seen over there. Um, a handful of new bikes. Uh, if if they were not being introduced there, they were at least kind of being shown and showcased there. Uh, gravel still really hot. Uh, definitely a handful of new gravel bikes that were there. Um, one thing that I thought was really cool, though, is while we generally see a lot of attention at the very high end of the market – um, 
there was also a lot of attention at kind of the lower end of the market. Like, yeah, that's uh, cool. You know, uh, the, that new Shimano Q stuff. Yeah. Uh, Seattle was the first time I'd been able to check out that stuff in person, and it looks fantastic. Um, and then Microshift was there. Um, they've been pretty busy. Um, and then Box Components was there as well. I didn't have a chance to make it to their booth, but uh, it's really cool to see a bunch of kind of different brands playing in that space now. And and TRP as well. Or are they a little bit more high-end with uh, their initiatives? TRP was concentrating on their new 12-speed group mm-hmm. set. Uh, it was yep. definitely higher-end, kind of aiming more at the kind of SRAMs and Shimano's of the world. Um, but that group set is less expensive, uh, I guess, feature for feature, than, uh, than kind of like what you'd see from SRAM or Shimano. Um, and that stuff honestly looks great. Um, it's, again, certainly more affordable. Um, I actually have a group set from TRP inbound as well, so hopefully, get, hopefully, uh, hopefully, we'll have a review of that shortly. You're gonna um, have just mechanical cables everywhere if you're with all the uh, drivetrains. You're looking ideally. to test. Yeah, it's a good, and well, you know, it's going to have all these derailleur cables to use because you know, like I, you know, I, I don't use them for brake lines anymore. So, ha ha ha. <laughs> Sorry, that was a that was a nod to my my recent Superstrata review. So, yeah. if you don't get the joke, you should check out that review on EscapeCollective.cc. Anyway, uh, you mentioned MicroShift. Uh, they, I mean, that one is always interesting to me because they're just such a high value sort of feature packed brand. Uh, so I'd previously used the advent x which is sort of their their top end i think it's 10 speed group set but it's got like a it's a 10 speed group but with a the range i guess you more associate with a 12 speed mountain bike group set so it's 11 to 48 tooth cassette big gaps yeah big gaps but uh very robust uh and just uh yeah really some nice high-end features for not a lot of money um, they've updated the Advent X rear derailleur, which is quite interesting to see. So they've they've uh, soon enough you'll be able to buy that rear derailleur, which has a shorter cage to it, which uh, improves ground clearance and theory probably makes it a bit stronger, uh, less likely to get picked up by sticks and that kind of thing. Uh, and the geometry of the cage is also different, so it now sits more forward of the cassette, so you'll get better chain wrap, and in theory you should get better shifting from it as well. Um, so the little tweaks like that and. The coolest part is it's still the same price, which is like, I think it's like a 80 US dollar derailleur. Uh, it might be a little less than that. Uh, I like these things. I like to see... I do too. Yeah. I like to see the entry level stuff just get better just because they can make it better. What's also pretty cool too, I think, is, I mean, in some ways, some of these lower cost options are, you could argue that it's kind of like stepping back in time sometimes as far as as far as shifting performance goes. Um, but these companies have also been really good about making their inexpensive components compatible with nicer stuff, at least in terms of like cassette spacing and stuff like that. So that certainly opens the door to uh, you know tricks that that all three of us have used back in the day, as far as you know maybe using kind of an off-brand or different derailleur and shifter, but pairing that to like a name brand cassette and chain. Like if you were to take a MicroShift setup and then use an actual Shimano chain cassette. Uh, I suspect the shifting would actually probably be pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, like MicroShift themselves sort of, uh, yeah, it's it's very personal by design. They don't offer their own chain, for example. They just tell you to use whatever 10-speed chain you want. So right. it's, uh, yeah, I think it's, I like this kind of system. Like MicroShift basically is selling a cassette derailleur and shifter for their, for the Advent X, and then everything else is up to you. So it's, 
uh, yeah, I think it's it's quite unique. And uh, I'd say TRP are kind of taking a similar path in that they're not making their own chains. They're just saying KMC is what we equip. But, you know, if you've got a, a another chain you want to use and it's the right speed, then go ahead. Yeah, and they're licensing chain ring uh, tooth technology from someone else too. I think they're using MRP chain rings essentially. Um, so they didn't even bother with that. They're just licensing that from someone else or I guess having someone else make the chain rings for them. Um, but yeah, fun to see a lot more options here. Like it would be, it'd be nice to see that on the roadside too, although that would be harder to do just given the difficulties of integrated controls and all the patents and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. So we're seeing plenty of good things in the low end and affordable drivetrain space. Um, perhaps at the opposite end of things, James, you've got written here, um, the rise of good looking e-mountain bikes. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of discussion of e-mountain bikes at Sea Otter for sure. And I know certainly in the U.S., uh, e-mountain bikes are very polarizing. Uh, we don't have nearly the same level of like uh, of trail access for e-mountain bikes as a lot of other places do. Um, there's just a lot of different attitudes about, tra- uh, about e-mountain bikes here. Like it's just very, very polarizing to put it mildly. Um, but uh, the industry definitely sees e-mountain bikes as the way forward. There's a lot of talk right now as far as like they're so popular and they are so overwhelming the sales of push bikes that, um, you know, there a lot of companies are having discussions as far as like, you know, what does, you know, what, what do non-powered mountain bikes look like in the next five, 10 years or whatever? Like, you know, what, what do those segments look like? It's almost sort of analogous to kind of like the automatic versus manual transmission car. It's like, you know, the enthusiasts maybe want manual transmission cars, but the market in general predominantly wants automatic. So why bother to have, or why bother to devote resources to the smaller segment of the market? Um, I mean, that's maybe the subject of a different show, but as far as that sea otter goes, one of the things that I saw, and this is sort of an intersection with the, 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 the kind of rise of cross country stuff that we were talking about earlier, there's an awful lot of really good looking e mountain bikes right now that, are so well integrated that you really, really almost can't tell that they're e-bikes at first, mm-hmm. even second glance. So you've got to look at them pretty closely now, like especially with the rise in popularity of that new TQ motor system. Um, that drive unit is so small, and the battery really tucks in nicely into a, a kind of like a modestly oversized top tube, uh, modestly oversized down tube, and then the control unit is just kind of like this little screen on the on the front of the top tube. Um, it's very discreet. They're quiet. Uh, they're still really expensive, but, um, yeah, there were an awful lot of them out there. And I have to admit, especially given one, one trail network in, in particular that we have here, uh, near us here in Boulder, I've really been interested in the idea of getting an e-mountain bike just because it's almost like having your own lift just kind of underneath you and you can just shuttle so many more laps. And it, I, I kind of wonder if it would just make you a better rider in a lot of ways. I have an opposing theory. Oh, what is that, Zach? The every so like the last I don't know five or so years, the mountain bike push was enduro bikes, right? So everyone got these big, hundred and sixty mil travel bikes that weighed thirty plus pounds, horrendous to pedal, and most people like the trails you're talking about are kind of an outlier. But most people's trails, you don't need that bike. No, a lot of people right. are overbiked these days. So they're like, wow, this is really slow to pedal. And then instead of going like, mm, maybe let's get less travel and get a fast XC bike, you get a motor on the big heavy bike and make it a bigger and heavier bike. Like, just ride an XC bike. 
like a hard tail that like you do at, at left hand yeah or a full suspension xc bike like i i don't know i know there are some trails that an xc bike is not fun to ride on but like for the most part it's just as fast as a e-bike but like you're still pedaling and then it's more fun on the way down because you're like bouncing around and it's a bit scary yeah instead of just like monster trucking this 40 pound bike down a trail. I mean, I, I tend to agree with you for the most part, Zach, but I, I think there is a use case scenario there, for e mount There is definitely I, a use I case. I feel like the, the industry-wide push of it seems to be overblown a bit. Well, I, I don't know if it's so much... I, I don't even know if we can so much call it... Well, I mean, we can kind of call it an industry push, but in this case, I feel like it very much has been dictated by what people are buying, particularly in Europe. Um, I mean, e-mountain bikes surpassed the sales of regular mountain bikes in Europe a long time ago. And... I don't know if it's necessarily because bike companies are kind of like pushing them, so to speak. But they push the enduro bike that sucks to pedal uphill. Yeah, but I mean, so that's but, like but, the next progressive yeah, step. Yeah, but but do you honestly do you honestly think the bike industry is that prescient to think that far ahead? I mean, they can't even get a bottom bracket right. No, I don't, I don't, I don't think that. that I think that like they pushed this big enduro bike because it was a new sales category, and like let's sell all these enduro bikes because that's what's the rage. There's enduro world series and all this stuff, and then. People are like, oh, wow, these are really slow to pedal uphill. How do we make it faster? And like, then they want a mo- motor to it, right? Mm. I, I, think you're, I think you're pretty spot on with how the masses ended up on, on 160 mil travel e-bikes. And for me, that's absolutely the use cases. I want an Enduro bike. I want a 160, 170 mil travel bike for, for local Sydney trails. There's a lot of trails here that are, are too rough and, and too technical for a 110, 120 mil travel bike. Um, you can ride them, but I mean, there's not a lot of room for error with that style of bike. Uh, and yeah, the at the same time, the I don't want to be pedaling a 160 mil travel bike up our, our steep hills. So in that sense, I completely agree with what you're saying in that how we how the industry got here. Um, but I would say that there's the use case is still very much there for a lot of people to have a 160 mil travel bike. I would I would rather see like. A 130, 140, very pedalable, but also very capable bike. Well, I was just going to see, I wonder if what we're going to eventually settle on, in addition to e-bikes at this point, but if we're going to settle on a single category for uh, for non-powered bikes, it really does seem like almost the perfect scenario would be kind of shorter travel, 120, 130 millimeter bikes, somewhere around there, that also have frame geometry that are f- somewhat similar to kind of longer travel bikes because a lot of times these longer travel bikes what really what people really really like about them is i mean yes you have more travel they're more forgiving in that sense but oftentimes they're also slacker and more stable in their handling they're more forgiving going downhill they kind of feel safer to ride um and i wonder if we might just see sort of a melding of those two features into a bike that's a little bit lighter and easier to pedal yep I've also seen some people argue that uh, more suspension travel is not a negative for climbing. I don't agree with this, but the argument is is that it it's it's weight related and it's rolling resistance related. So if you can get a a one sixty mil travel bike that's competitive in weight to say a one forty mil travel bike, and that doesn't have one point five kilo tires with enormous amount of rolling resistance, that you actually have a fairly efficient pedaling bike that is still capable of ripping downhill. Uh, kind of like, a, I guess, an Enduro series, World Series race bike, I guess is what you'd probably liken it to. Uh, and I've seen that argument that you can kind of have the best of both worlds, but 
uh, I mean, there's always a compromise. There's always a tipping point. So now I'm going off on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of tangents, where's Kaylee? Kaylee is off this week, by the way. He's he's busy with another meeting while we're recording this. So just FYI. Yeah. Um, Speaking uh, of uh, lightweight things, though, um, Zach, you sent me over Instagram. Uh, you spotted some new zip wheels on a, oh, yeah. a cross country like, race bike. What did I send you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a few of the guys at Seattle racing the XC race. There were some some new looking zip wheels out there. But they were not their moto wheels. Mm. So, can you explain what the moto wheel is? The motor wheel is a single wall carbon rim that's designed to flex and made for more of the trail enduro segment. Mm-hmm. And they're not particularly light. They seem to not catch on particularly well. Yeah. And they do a, a gravel a hard, version now as well. It, it was a hard concept to yeah. to really to grasp for some people. Or like it's like all of, of the all of the features and selling points of that wheel were like the same thing as an aluminum rim. So that was what always confused <laughs> me on that product. Um but at Sea Otter, yeah, it looked like a new XC wheel. It was very low profile, probably not single wall, um, probably very light, probably pretty modern and like 30 mil internal, I would assume, or like to see. Yeah. But, so talk about that flex. I mean, it's it's ankling, I guess, at the at the spoke nipple is probably the, the type of flex that Zipper are trying to achieve here, where it's it's not necessarily like you're you're general compliance that people think of a wheel where it sort of compress uh the anklings it was, it was like it was like tuned it was rim supposed twisting. To like side to side almost yeah it's it's meant to almost follow the contour of the tire so when you're cornering it's meant to the rims meant to better align the tire is sort of the goal with that wheel um but whether that offers enough of a an appreciable difference is, is questionable and whether that's worth the the weight penalty that seems to come with these wheels is also one that's yet to be answered um but yeah i think it's it is interesting to see zip enter the space it's not surprising i mean they've got the same technology available in the explore gravel range now so it makes sense that they'd fill that gap but it will be interesting to see what sort of weight they hit with these wheels yeah i would say these as not like if i were to guess what they're making i wouldn't think that it's also kind of following that same theory as the moto wheels i would think this is like here's xc race wheel it is as light as we could possibly make it and it's in the top whatever three wheel sets on the market in terms of that weight. I mean, at this point, if Zip is going to compete on weight, they've got some pretty heady competition at this point. Yeah. Uh, like those those new Bontrager, uh, I can't remember what they're called the now. RSL. Yeah. I mean, those are what, like sub- 1250 or something? Yeah, they're sub 13. Yeah. Um, and Royval have a wheel around that weight and everything. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the competition in that space is really, really hot at the moment. So, if Zip is going to compete on weight, these things are going to have to be super, super light. So, and also, um, I would say, like, equally as durable. Like, both the, yeah, the Bond Trigger and the Rovals use DT hubs. And I mean, that's always kind of been Zip's weakest point historically. So, I would like to see them not just have this crazy light wheel set, but also like have a hub that actually works really well. Yeah. But, uh, but either way, wherever these turn out to be, yeah, if their sponsored pros are already using them right now, and presumably maybe have been for a little while, I would have to guess that these, these are going to come out at some point this season. Yeah, because these like they had decals on them and everything. Yeah, they, they weren't they were just done. like we're trying to hide these, but people are riding them. They were yeah. these have zip logos on them. Yeah, I I'm going to speculate that it is using the Moto Ankling mm. Flex technology, and that they're not going after the weight wars, and that they're going to make a claim that a little bit of extra weight comes with 
that benefit and they'll sell us on all of that. Yeah, because they've got to have something to either set them apart if they can't go head to head on weight. But yeah. I also think they're like, so if you're looking at it like, okay, Zip has a big market with traditional roadies and gravel people. Mm-hmm. Um, like an XE is maybe this new thing. Like the traditional Zip customers getting an XE bike for the first time, they're going to be like, ooh, I could get Zip wheels rather than being like, that's why they're going to buy them. Not necessarily because, of, oh, they flex when you ride the trail this way and the tire does this. Like people don't care about that, whether it actually works or not. Like most people, they're buying Zips because it says Zip. It says Zip on it. Yeah. I mean, Fair. either way, we, we'll, we'll find out soon. Yeah. Uh, Dave, there were some cool tools, I will have to say, oh. that were there as well. Oh, yes. And and every time <laughs> I saw a tool, I kept thinking about you, how much uh, you, you would have loved to just oh, thanks, stand James. there and kind of caress them in person. Uh, but but uh, I, have, I have to say, like, I almost wonder if we can singularly credit you with the rise of some of this kind of high-end tool trend, like kind of like the fashion of tools now. Uh, like Wheels Manufacturing, they actually had a they're they're going to start launching like an artist series of of uh, of various tools that they have. Uh, they're going to limit them to runs of twenty only. They're going to be sold certainly at a premium, um, and you know that like they're just fancy tools. Like they function exactly the same as their regular like headset and bearing presses and that sort of thing. But they have fancy anodizing that's not going to be offered anywhere else. Um, so that that's purely just an aesthetic thing, kind of like an exclusivity thing. Um, that was kind of neat, but what I thought was actually much more interesting was this tool uh, from uh, I think it's a Swiss brand, Milkit, uh, previously known for uh, kind of like these funky tubeless valve stems and sealant and a couple of the tubeless related things. Um, but they have this tool called the Hassle Off tool, the H A S L E L apostrophe O F F, very clever name. Um, but uh, it's it's basically built around one of your favorite little multi tools, Dave, the the day saver. Yeah. Um, and it also bundles with it the uh, what is it? The Essentials Five is that what the little tire level tire lever thing yeah. is called? Yeah. Uh, or co working five maybe. Yeah. Co working five. That's what yeah. it is. But uh, it's it's tiny. It's this tiny little multi tool that packs in virtually every feature that you could want. Uh, including a chain breaker, like a proper chain breaker, yep. into this little, little like pretty much weatherproof, almost like a, I would almost say it was like a, like an old school like cigarette case sort of size thing, um, but it's essentially designed to mount to either like your dedicated tool mount on a frame or in between a bottle cage and your frame. Uh, easy access. Um, also has this extra little strap mount if you want to put a tube on there. It's pretty neat. It has like tubeless plugs and all this other stuff. It's a little bit expensive. It's 99 euros, but the fact that it also includes that day saver and co-working setup is yeah. Yeah, actually makes it kind of a pretty good deal. Yeah, and that day saver, like those two day saver tools, like the Essential 8, I think it's called, and then the co-working 5, which are kind of like your Allen key set and then the chain breaker tool. Um, I think they're like 75 euro together. So to get a plug kit and a holder and everything else for that extra 25 euro doesn't sound like bad value to me. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I think it's interesting that milk, it's offering so much for that price point, I'd say, um, kind of makes me question the logic there of, of day saver versus, versus, versus milk it and, and yeah, how they're, how those two companies are operating, but, uh, does look intriguing. It does for sure. Um, can I push back a little bit? You, um, on the, the colored tools, um, 
I would argue that probably Toolbox Wars on Instagram are more responsible oh, for the okay, fine. Uh, for the trend of colored limited edition tools. That's that's more their shtick. Um, I would I would probably just say I'm perhaps more responsible for for people buying ten sets of Allen keys. <laughs> I I will just say that when I was talking to the folks at Wheels Manufacturing, I will point out that they explicitly the person I was talking to explicitly said uh, explicitly said we love Dave Rome. Oh. Oh, thanks guys. Um <laughs> Yeah, good so tool I think there's some credit there. Yeah. headed your way or blame I think or most of the credit there should be towards Abby. Like Abby started making really nice bike tools and then bike mechanics including Dave and myself and you yeah, all started buying Abby and other high quality tools instead of the standard Park or Pedros or whatever bicycle yeah. specific tool. Yeah, and I think that has made all of those other companies kind of have to step their game up. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think there's a lot of factors there, but uh, yeah, certainly um, I cannot take responsibility for limited edition colors of tools. That's that's <laughs> definitely not me. So okay, fine, fine, <laughs> fine. Uh, other things I saw, James, did you get your hands on the Project 321 center lock hubs? I did. I did. This is an interesting one because uh, you've, you've long had these two ways of mounting disc brake rotors to hubs. You have the kind of more traditional six bolt method where you just use six M5 bolts to stick the rotor onto the hub. And then you have center lock, which was the, the system Shimano introduced however many years ago, where you have this splined interface where you just sort of slide the rotor on and then there's a single lock ring. Um, a lot of rotors that people like to run, however, aren't offered in center lock. Uh, and then there are a lot of hubs um, that, you know, some of them are only offered in center lock, but the whole center lock system is, it does just give you a lot of flexibility. Like you can always run a six bolt on a center lock hub, but you can't run a center lock rotor on a six bolt hub. Um, so a lot of companies are are going to, to center lock just because it gives you the most flexibility. Um, Project 321, they were a company that was based here in the U.S. They got bought out by a Canadian, um, I don't know if it's a, a single person or another company, but anyway, they've since relocated to Canada. Um, they have a third-generation hub now, which looks great. Um, adjustable preload, different driver design, so, so on and so forth. Still uses these magnetic poles. It's kind of neat. Um, but the thing that people were talking about was this new center lock adapter that they have. So uh, usually with a center lock adapter, you have sort of like this splined kind of ring that just slips onto the, uh, the slips onto the hub. And then they usually have sort of, you know, some way like six little, six little posts or whatever to, to secure the rotor. And then you have the lock ring that goes on as usual. Um, but what project three, two, one has done is pretty different. They have an adapter that it's a two piece adapter. It has a stainless steel part um, that kind of snaps around the base of the splines. And then you have an aluminum part that kind of fits over the whole thing. But then you use six bolts to attach the rotor onto your center lock hub, and it kind of sandwiches everything together. It's super, super secure. It's quite small. It's quite light, actually, and it's it's neat for a lot of reasons. Um, you, people should go check out the gallery that's on escapecollective.cc right now to check out what this thing actually looks like. But one thing that's cool is this stainless steel part. Uh, that is what actually takes the load now as far as um, how the rotor is attached. So... If you want to be super fancy, you can go to, with lighter weight bolts now, since they're th- those bolts are no, are no longer they no longer do anything aside from just keep the rotor from falling off. Uh, like when you're when you're braking, those ro- those bolts really don't do anything anymore at this point. Um, 
Project 321 is only selling them with their own hubs at this point, just to guarantee some dimensional tolerances and compatibility and that sort of thing. But uh, pretty cool little widget. Um, they yeah. kind of gave me a sneak peek of these a while ago, and uh, it was good to see those in person. And yeah, kind of limited niche appeal, but people were definitely talking about them. Yeah, I, I think it's cool. Like it's it's obviously one hub shell to do both cellular rotors, whereas pretty much every other high-end hub manufacturer has to make multiple hub shells. They they offer a center lock and six bolt as, as separate products. And then you think about all the colors they have to offer and all the axle standards. It's it's a lot of products. I mean, this kind of halves that count. Um, and I guess the skeptical view is that that would save them money. But from my point of view, I, I just think it's a very clean option that just seems to keep your options open as a user. that You can run seemingly from... What I've seen of it, you can run either center lock or six bolt without any downside. So, I just don't understand people's opposition to center lock in the first place. I don't. I don't think people are necessarily opposed to it. But like I said, like some, talking about less oh, no, colors, people are opposed Chris, to it. People are so opposed to it though, and I don't understand. Like Chris King had to bring six back bolt because so many people got upset on the internet, and I don't. Like what's wrong with the center lock rotor? Well, I I want I don't think there's anything wrong with the center lock rotor. But people um, think but, there is. But but I think there's not enough. I think there aren't enough people who even understand that you can put a six bolt rotor onto a center lock hub. But I don't even understand why you'd want to do that. Just run a center lock rotor. Well, but mm. but I mean, it's like I said earlier. I think a lot of a lot of rotors like what uh, what uh, rotor. I think, um, like Swiss Stop, if I remember correctly, I don't think that comes in center lock. They do at least for the road. I know that. Hayes, I don't think, makes a center lock option. That's like five customers out there. <laughs> what do you mean? Like half of my Tuesday crew runs center lock, <laughs> runs, a, runs a Hayes brakes at this because point. Because they're your friends and you told them that these brakes are good. But they are. But like the general anyway, that's public. Not the, that's not the point. That's they not ha- the point. Quit being argumentative. But I'm just saying, there's like, <laughs> if everything was center lock hubs, Hayes could make a center lock rotor. That is, that is true, but they like, cost more. Uh, the the big issue with center lock in my experience is that if it does come loose on a trail, which can happen, does happen, have seen it, uh, you can't really fix it while you're on the trail because you need a cassette t- lock ring tool or you need a bottom bracket tool to fix it. And most people don't then carry that. Make sure that. your stuff is tight enough. Uh, so, but that's the issue is that a multi tool can do a six can fix a six bolt rotor. Uh, but if a center lock rotor comes loose because you've under talked it and you haven't talked it up to 40 newton meters, which is actually a lot more than most people realize, uh, then yeah, you have this issue that you can't really fix, and then you hear your rotor rattling down the trail. Um, that's not not a center lock issue. That's a people and their lack of bike maintenance issue. No, but I think that's what's led to center lock having so much hatred in the pink bike comments. Is that these people because people don't use torque wrench rotors. and are doing their rotors up to 20 <laughs> newtonmeters instead of 40 newtonmeters and having them come undone. Uh, and I think that's part of the issue. I just don't... That seems like a silly excuse. Oh. The center lock's so much better in every other way. Grumpy old hater has entered that's the chat. That's not... No, that's like... Center lock is a newer thing. I'm not... If it I was is, old, I is. would be telling you, give me four bolt. <laughs> like, <laughs> four bolt, Yes. I guess Bring my coda. <laughs> there are other there are other things there. Like uh, it's it's much cheaper to just have a stamped six bolt rotor, whereas center lock inherently needs a spider and you know the carrier and it builds in costs. So I mean, there's there's people at I guess at the low end where six bolt still to me makes more sense. Yet you see bikes like cheap bikes coming with tawny level center lock rotors and stupid steel lock rings, and it's just heavier without any benefit. Uh, like so I think. Strata. Yeah, but that's I, not what we're talking about. We're talking about Project Three Two One hubs. No, we're like, talking about Project Three Two One hubs, end. which cost more than that. Like I, a, I understand on bike. the low end, like a stamp steel rotor should exist for low end bikes. Yeah. But 
but yeah, I think there's there's a few factors here as to why people hate Centerlock for some reason. But uh, but yeah, I think fundamentally it's going back to the Project Three Two One, them offering both without much without any obvious disadvantage seems to be the way to go. Zach, I didn't realize this was such a. I just don't understand. Like, you read the comments and people get so upset (laughs) about like someone introduced a new center lock hub and people just yell at it. And I'm like, that is true. That's very true. It's so much better and easier to work on and easier to replace a rotor and easier to travel with and easier to do everything. And you don't have to sit there with a very poorly made T25 bolt Mm -hmm. that's probably going to round out because you have a bad tool. Like, it's it takes a, you more than six times as long to yeah. install or remove. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not arguing with you on that one. Yeah, I'm, I just. I'm just. It I'm always just blows my mind at people's hatred of the center lock rotor. Fair, yeah. fair. Yeah. It, the, the the hatred of the center lock design, I would say, is not grounded in a good functional argument. Yeah, yeah. For the so, record, I no. prefer center lock. Um, <laughs> and to overcome the six bolt issue, I keep a Milwaukee twelve bolt. Uh, impact gun with a T25 bit in it, just ready to go full time. That's my set. That's yeah. my six. I mean, bolt if you bolt. if you install a six bolt rotor without a drill, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. So anyway, hmm. right, moving on. Yeah. Well, I think that's enough sea otter stuff for now. <laughs> we can end on that happy note. <laughs> but uh, please head over to escapecollective.cc. By the time you hear this podcast, there will be three galleries that have been up on the site, and there will still be a couple more to come before I wrap up. It's a lot of photos. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, as far as I know, I don't think we have a corrections corner to, to talk about on this week's show. But do either of you have anything on your mind at the point uh, at this point that something on your mind that may be over the head of your family? Mm, no, just just my just the love hate relationship of Centerlock rotors for me. But I think we've covered that <laughs> enough. So, yeah. Um, mm. Zach, what what are you what are you working I mean, on? Not really. Uh. I mean, in the stand right now, oh, yeah. It's a He's Sarto. got a beautiful bike in the stand yeah, right now. Yeah, it's really nice. It's a Sarto with super record EPS and lightweights and SRM and ceramic speed and all of the things. It's really pretty. What's it in That's really cool. The SRM. Oh, okay. It's not working. Not working. Oh, okay. Yeah. What is working? But the everything else. Oh, okay. everything else. Oh, it is a yeah. beautiful bike. But especially in the light too, the carbon weave, it has this like green tinted something interwoven with it. It's really good. Yum. Yeah. It's it's not arrow though, Zach. How does it go? But the cables are hidden, so it's half arrow. Hmm. How do you fix an SRM? You mail it to Colorado Springs. Okay. And still, they fix it. Still send it back. Okay. Yep. Yep. Same as usual. All right. Hmm. Yeah. I, I do have something on my mind, but I think at this point... We're running a little long in the show, so I think I'd rather just sort of skip to a PSA, if you don't mind. Okay. All right. I don't mind. Uh, okay. Well, uh, just to wrap up this week's show, I do have a PSA that I've been saving for a couple weeks now, mm-hmm. uh, and it's related to daytime running lights, because here in the US, certainly here in Boulder, I've been seeing an awful lot more people running rear flashers on their bikes on the road, which I think is a nice little trend for visibility and safety and that sort of thing. Uh, however... I would like to point out that I think far too many people who are running DRLs have absolutely no concept as to how dim the one that they have is because I, I kind of make a point of, you know, when I'm, when I'm out riding this one stretch of road in particular is like just heading up 36 North out of town. It's like, you've got, sight, you've got sight lines for days. Um, 
So you can often see if someone's got a, d- a good DRL, you can see them from just way, way off in the distance. Um, but if you don't, I've literally been within like five bike lengths of someone and only just then noticed that they had a, a DRL on their bike. That is not a good one. Mm. So I would just like to tell people out there, just as a little safety, little safety warning here. If you think you have a good DRL, or if you don't, if you don't really know if your if your daytime running light is good, your rear flasher specifically, just turn it on, set it somewhere where you can see it, and then set it somewhere where you can kind of walk away from it a fair distance, and just keep looking at it. And if it is not piercingly bright when you are, I don't know, let's say 100, 200 paces, maybe ideally more, then you should. It's probably not doing what you think you're doing, and you should probably get rid of it and get something good. I mean, I see a lot of like really cheap Amazon ones on people's bikes, and they are not good. They're useless. If anything, they just offer a false sense of security. So, so I, what is good? What do you use? Uh, there are a bunch of good ones that are out there now. Um, my go-to is still a Bontrager Flare. Did I? Um, I feel like they've got really good flashing patterns and brightness and that sort of thing. Um, I'm using a, a Garmin Varia a lot more often these mm. days, at least on the road. And that one, the DRL is not as bright, uh, but it does offer that radar feature, which, you know, to me, I feel like kind of makes up for that in a lot of ways. Uh, Knight Rider makes some good stuff. Uh, Exposure makes some good ones. Um, who else makes good ones? Uh, there's a bunch of them. Like, you know, Planet Cycling even makes a pretty good one. Um, there are lots and lots of good options. Uh, some of the design ones have been pretty good as well. Yeah. Um, there are lots and lots of good options, but there are seemingly far, far more bad options. And it drives me crazy. Yeah. Zach, you also use a Bontrager Flare? Correct. Yeah. So I would say like the fact that the three of us all use the same blinky light yep. is probably a good good yep. review of the product. Yeah, I use that or the, I can't even remember the name of it, but the Lazine, top end Lazine flashy things. Um, yeah, those are piercingly bright. Yeah, those are sort of my, the ones I jump between. Um, and both have been pretty reliable for me. Um, unlike the Nog Cobbler. Cobbler? Cobbler? I don't know what they're called. A lot of, uh, yeah. A lot of, Nog stuff I feel like is kind of hit or miss. Yeah. The, it was a cool design, like a wraparound design and yeah. sort of curve, yeah. curve back and really bright, yep. really, really great design. But uh, unfortunately, I've broken two of them now. So um, hmm. they're off my list. Hmm. All right. Well, in, in any event, that is my public service announcement for this week's episode. Just check your, your rear DRL and just actually make sure that it is doing what you think it's doing. Because there's a good chance that it's not. All right. Well, with that, that'll be the end of this week's episode of Geek Warning. Uh, If you aren't already a member of Escape Collective, please head over to escapecollective.cc and become one. It is how we fund all this stuff. It's how we fund everything uh, on the site right now. It's how we all get paid and that sort of thing. Um, But as far as the podcast goes, as far as Geek Warning goes, um, if you haven't already done so, please head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review because that actually helps us quite a bit as far as people finding the show. Um, And certainly tell all your buddies about Geek Warning because we like having more geeks to talk to. Yeah, find find the person in your your cycling group with the the clean chain and and tell them about us. (laughs) They'll appreciate it. Also, indeed, find indeed. the person with the dirtiest chain and with tell the them about chain. us. Um, <laughs> that'll also work. But uh, I have a feeling they may not stick around in terms of listening. But uh, who knows? Maybe we can convert them to being a clean chain rider. Maybe. Maybe. One can mm. hope. All right. Well, with that, thanks again for listening. We will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Cheers.